0: Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're continuing, of course, our study of the gospel of Matthew. And Matthew presents Jesus as the King of the Jews. And we see him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the King and the Savior. And, of course, we've been going verse by verse all the way through the book. That's what we do. We do uh, expository teaching. We've been seeing what is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew's chapters 5, 6, and 7. And it's a special teaching time. Jesus goes to the side of a long sloping hill, sits down. He has already chosen 12 men, the 12 disciples. He's got them and he's teaching. While he's teaching, there's a large crowd listening to what he is saying. He has given instructions to his disciples on basically righteous living. How we live as those who belong uh, to Jesus Christ, belong in the kingdom of God is how he puts it. The, the the outline of the study for the Sermon on the Mount could be divided into two big parts. The the first is the subjects and the character, and then the second is the platform of the king. And let me just show you the outline. I don't want you to worry about it. It's too small to really get into. But the first part he talks about, the, this is the Beatitudes where he talks about what we're like. And then he gets in what we call the platform, and he talks about he fulfills the law. And then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is basically showing the improper view of the law as the Pharisees. Jesus will say something like you have heard it said but I say to you and he deals with subjects like murder and adultery and divorce and oaths and and, and then he goes down and talks about giving and praying and fasting and then he gets down to the bottom line at the very end. And so over these weeks as we go through this we're going to see a, a lot of information. <clears throat> the last few weeks before we stop for Christmas we talked really about what was known as the Beatitudes, and that was for us. And the Beatitudes were basically how we live as, as believers are seeking to live. And he ended a little section calling us salt and light. And if you remember, salt because salt we're preservative; we try to preserve the culture, and we're, uh, we we uh, add flavor and, and you know that kind of thing. And then we're light because we point the way, and we're trying to live holy and righteous in a fallen world. And so we talked about that as we. Continue on, and we now start in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. We call this the platform of the king because he's going to begin to give the moral law. He's going to talk about the law, especially the verses this morning. And sometimes when you hear of law, if somebody says law, you immediately think of the Mosaic law. And the Mosaic Law was actually for a particular time period. It was a time period beginning with Moses on Mount Sinai until Jesus died on the cross. And the Bible tells us that Christ is the end of the law to all who believe. So we're going to talk more about that. But there is a moral law, which is a right and wrong, which is all the way through the Bible. And when He talks about Sermon on the Mount and how we live, is uh, let me go back to He's talking about righteous living of believers and. Um, He says something this morning. He says he didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. What does that mean? How does it all fit? How does this work? So I've got some questions just for you to think about this morning. Do do we have an understanding of the law? Notice I didn't say the law. I said law. Law is a principle, moral aspects. Do we understand what Jesus meant by his fulfilling the law? And then do we realize that how we live affects our future and our rewards. And we'll see it in the passage. And then here's the question that people always say, how good does one have to be in order to be in the kingdom? In other words, how good does a person have to be in order, as some people would say, to go to heaven or to be with Jesus Christ? So let's start with that. How good does a person have to be? What does it take? We realize that God and man are separated. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. How can a sinful human being get to be with the perfect righteous God? If we went into Stillwater and we asked people the question, and I've actually done this sometimes. I've asked people, I said, let me ask you a question. What do you think it takes for a person to be able to go to heaven or to be with God, something like that? And some people say things like, we'll try to live a good life. Some people say, keep the Ten Commandments. Some people do say, do good things. Some say, we'll go to church, get baptized. Uh, some people say, well, bad people don't go to heaven, but good people do go to heaven. Well, here's my question. Okay, bad people don't go to heaven. Good people go to heaven. How good how good do you have to be? You know, if it's good people, how good? Because if you compare yourself to other people, you say, well, I'm better than those people, but I might not be better than these people. Well, let me just tell you something. The standard is not based on people. The standard is based on God, and he is perfect. So I want you to understand that. The requirement to get to heaven is to be perfectly righteous. So for everyone who's in this room, if you said, how good do I need to be to get to heaven? The answer is you have to be perfect. And you would say... Uh, I don't think I'm perfect. No, you're not. And we realize this, a great truth, that the righteousness required to get us to heaven is a perfect righteousness, and God gives us. By faith, when we trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, by faith, God gives us the righteousness He demands. Now I want you to understand what that means. That means the moment you trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, Romans 4 or 5 says, the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is credited for righteousness. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ to give you eternal life, God gives you His Righteousness. So if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, and if I said to you, all of you who know Christ as Savior, are you perfectly righteous? The answer would be yes. Now, experientially, no. Positionally, yes. And this is what we're going to see when we start thinking about how good does a person have to be. Well, God says, no, you can't be good enough. You have to be perfect. And when you trust in Jesus, he gives you that Righteousness. Now, let me break down the passage for you this morning because he's dealing with law and righteousness and all those kind of things. In fact, he even says at the end of the passage, unless your righteousness... Is better than the scribes and the Pharisees you can 't enter into the kingdom of god, so here 's we 're going to see in our passage this morning that we 're going to talk about Jesus and the law matthew five seventeen through twenty for first of all we 're going to see jesus fulfills the law you 've got this on the on your bulletin, this outline Jesus fulfills the law, then we talk about the law has a purpose we talk about rewards and law, and then we talk about righteousness required, and so when we look at this it 's hard and let me I told told you as we went through the, the sermon of the uh, the Gospel of Matthew, there are three really hard places. The, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 are hard. Matthew 13 is hard because they're called the mystery parables. We'll get to that eventually. And then in chapters 24 and 25, he deals with the tribulation time period, and it's, uh, it, it's uh, very hard as well. So we'll be looking at those. Now, a lot of the things in there, a lot of the things Jesus says, we go, I wish you'd have made it a little more clear. What did you mean? And so there's a lot there. So we've just seen that we as believers are salt and light. That when we walk out these doors, Jesus said, you've got to be the salt, you've got to be the light. Like he says, you don't light a, a light and put it up under something. You lit, put it out where it can be seen. And that's what we're supposed to do. We're to go into our community with the greatest message of all. And if you realize this, we have the greatest message. You don't need to be confused about it. The message is very simple. Jesus Christ died and rose again, paying for sin, conquering death, and offers a gift. The gift is eternal life. People trust in Jesus to get eternal life he gives us eternal life by faith so we get to go tell people that so jesus is is here and he's 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 talking to his to his disciples and he raises a question verse 17 says do not think that i came to abolish the law of the prophets i did not come to abolish but fulfill now why would he even start with that because there was a question if you remember jesus he did all kind of things and he did things different than everybody else. And the religious leaders wore the long robes and they sat in the right seats and they had the right thing and everything. And Jesus went and he messed around with people. And he, he sat down with people who, who the religious leaders would say, oh, you don't want to deal with those people. Those called are sinners. They're bad people. Jesus didn't wash his hands in the way that the religious leaders washed their hands. He didn't keep all the traditions he kept the word of God perfectly, but not the traditions. And so rumor was that Jesus was, f- was, was ignoring the Mosaic law. And religious leaders said Jesus was ignoring the law, that Jesus wasn't keeping the law because he ate with sinners and he didn't, he, he, di- he didn't do their things. Jesus never violated the word of God, but he often violated the traditions of men. I mean, I want to just show you how silly some of the traditions were. Jewish, Jewish people, you've heard me say this before. But as you know, on, on the Sabbath day, work six days, rest on the seventh. First day of the week is Sunday. The Sabbath day is Saturday. They were to rest on the Sabbath day. And they weren't supposed to do any work. Well, what if dirt got on you? What if mud got on you? The Pharisees had it written down that if mud got on you, you could wait for it to dry, and then you could hit three times. And that's all you could hit. And if you didn't get the mud off, you didn't get the mud off. They had all kind of stupid rules that they made up to keep people in check. That's why Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so Jesus violated their rules all the time. Not the Bible, but their rules. So they were telling people that Jesus was going to try to do away with the law. So notice what he says. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. He says, I didn't come to abolish it, which means to nullify it, to do away with it, but to fulfill it. Now, when he talks about law, he's really talking about uh, Jesus came to fulfill law. He's talking about the moral law of God because he actually did away eventually with the Mosaic law because we're not under the Mosaic Law anymore. We never have been. But I want to show you something about law. There are three aspects of law. There's the moral law, which was the commandments of the right and wrong. There was the ceremonial law, which the Jewish people did, which dealing with all their sacrifices and what animal to bring and all those things. And then they had ordinances, which is what food they could eat, what clothes they could wear, all of those kind of things. Jesus, when Jesus talks about law, he's going back to a moral code, a moral law, which basically is summed up, In the simple words of loving God and loving others. If you remember, they came to Jesus at one time and they said, tell us out of the 613 commandments, because the Jewish, the religious leaders had all these commandments, so many positive, so many negative, and they thought they would trick Jesus. And they said, tell us which is the greatest of all these 613 commandments. And Jesus said, here's number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. And number two is the same You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he put them all together. And so the moral code and the moral law is that we love God and we love others. And if we're loving God and loving others, then we'll treat each other in the way that we should. So it's called, in the New Testament, this is called the law of Christ Christ. Or the law of love, which we love God and love others and fulfill the law. So when the Bible in the New Testament talks about law, it's not talking about Mosaic law. It's talking about what we call the moral law, the law of Christ or the law of love. Let me show you this. It says, Romans 13, 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the, the law. How about Galatians 5, 14? For the whole law. Is fulfilled in one word in this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so when we talk about law, and when Jesus is talking about this whole concept, he's saying it goes back to the fact that you love God and you love others. He didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. Now let's talk about that for a minute. What in the world does he mean, fulfill the law? Well, he fulfilled the law in three ways. He kept the law, that was the moral aspects. He paid the penalty of the law because the Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death, okay? And he showed the proper view of the law. Now, I'm not going to go a lot of detail on this. I just want you to see how did Jesus fulfill the law. First of all, he kept it. He's the only person who ever kept the law. The law is the character of God. He actually wrote the law. He can keep it. There's nobody else who could. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. We're justified by law. But Jesus Christ is the only person that kept the law. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for, God, for him who knew no sin, 1 Peter 3, 18, God, Jesus Christ, the just for the unjust. He's the only just one. And John 8, 46, it says, whoever accuses me of sin, he asked him, does anybody accuse me of any sin? And the answer was no. Nobody, Jesus Christ is the only person who's ever kept the law. Of the 613 commandments found in the Mosaic law, and of all the moral laws and moral codes that we see all the way through the Bible, he's the only one that ever kept them. And every one of us in this room have sinned and done what? Come short of the glory of God. So we haven't kept them. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law by keeping the law. The second thing is he paid the penalty of the law. Because what is the penalty of the law? The wages of sin is What? Death. And what did Jesus do? In Romans 5:8, Jesus Christ, God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He came and paid the penalty of the law. You understand that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was not just some Roman government killing someone. It was Jesus Christ being our substitute, dying in our place on the cross to pay for our sins. In Titus 2, it talks about that he gave himself for us. 1 Peter 3.18, he died for our sins once for all. So I want you to understand that not only did Jesus keep the law by obeying it perfectly, he paid the penalty. The only person that never had to pay the penalty of the law paid the penalty of the law because all of us should have paid it because the wages of sin is death, but he died in our place. The third thing, he showed the proper view of the law. Now, you understand that the religious leaders saw the law as external. They would say, Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't knock this off. Make sure you wash your hands a certain way. Do this, do this, do this. They thought law was all external. They never saw internal. We're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say, don't be angry. He says, you've heard that it says not to commit adultery. But I say, don't lust. Because he's going to get to the internal part. The out, the religious leaders always looked at the outward part of the law. Jesus looked at the internal so internal and external. The so religious leaders saw law as only external. He saw it as both inside, outside, and inside. So he fulfilled the law. How did he do it? He kept it completely. He paid the penalty, and he showed the proper view of the law. So when we go back to verse 17, he says, Don't think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I came not to abolish it, to fulfill it. He fulfilled it by keeping it. He fulfilled it by paying the penalty. And he fulfilled it by showing the proper purpose of law, or the proper view of law, how you view it. The second thing is going to be dealing with the purpose. Law has a purpose. Look at verse 18. But truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is accomplished. There is an accomplishment of the law. The law has to do what it's supposed to do. You may be surprised by this, because most people think law is to show you how to live. Law is not to show you how to live, because you can't keep the law. If you looked at the Mosaic law and the 613 commandments... If you saw those, you can't keep those. Now, I want you to notice what he says. He says, I truly say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not even the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it's accomplished. He says, it's got to all be accomplished. Well, I want to raise some questions. When will heaven and earth pass away? What does he mean, letter or stroke? Because he says, the smallest letter or the smallest stroke... And then what is the purpose? What will be accomplished by the law? And then it will be passed away. So what are those three things? Well, let's start with this. When will heavens and earth pass away? Well, we know there's going to come a time. First of all, Jesus is going to come get us. There's going to be a seven-year tribulation on the earth. Jesus is going to come back as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's going to rule for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, there will be a, what they call the great white throne judgment. And after that, he'll make a new heavens and a new earth as Revelation chapters 21. And twenty-two, a new heaven and a new earth. That's when, because he says, uh, until the heaven and the earth pass away. Well, the heaven and the earth is going to pass away. If you remember the slide I've showed you this before, that's Jesus dying on the cross, paying for sin, rising again. We're in the church age now. The next event is the rapture. Jesus is going to come get us, take us off the face of the earth. There'll be a time period on the earth called the seven years, called the tribulation. Jesus Christ comes as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, sets up a kingdom and rules for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years will be what's called the great white throne judgment. And then there's eternity. But eternity starts in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. And he makes a new heavens and a new earth. And this heavens and earth will pass away. So when Jesus says, until the heavens and earth pass away, not the smallest stroke or letter will pass from the law, there's going to come a time when this earth passes away. And that's when we go into the eternal state. The second question is, what does he mean by this letter or stroke? Well, Hebrew is a unique language, and when I had it, I, I thought I'd never be able to make it because I have dyslexia. I liked Greek. I could read Greek easier because the letters look like letters, but in Hebrew, they don't look like letters. And I did okay in it, but the, there's, there's a, a, a little letter called a yod, and it looks like an apostrophe, and it's little bitty. And then, that's the one he says right here, for not until the smallest letter that's called a yod, little bitty, and then he says, or stroke. If you know what an O looks like, and then if we make a Q, we put a little bitty line on it at the bottom to make it look like a Q. In Hebrew, they take a letter, and an R looks like this, but a D puts a little bitty thing on the end, and it makes a D. That's what he's talking about. He's saying every aspect, every letter, every purpose of the Bible is going to come to pass. Just what God says. Just like we showed those slides a while ago, one of these days Jesus is going to come get you. One of these days there's going to be a tribulation. One of these days he's coming back as the king. One of these days he's going to rule for a thousand years. One of these days there'll be a great white throne judgment. One of these days there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. Why? Because every truth and every principle and everything the Bible says will come to pass. The third thing is what, what, is, the, what is the purpose of the law? What will be accomplished now, I'm going to show you this, and I'm going to go through it fairly quickly, but it may surprise you. The first one is, the purpose of the law is to show, show God's character. Second, show that man is a sinner and points to the way of salvation. This may surprise you, but look at this. First of all, the law shows the character of God. Romans 7, 12, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That's God's character. The law is the character of God. Why you can't keep it is because you're not a God. The second thing, what that shows the law's purpose is to show that we're sinners, Romans 3.20. Because the works of the law, no flesh could be ever justified in his sight, but through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We know we're sinners by looking at the law, and the law says don't covet, and we covet. The law says don't lie, and we lie. And so the law says you're a sinner and you need a savior. And that's the third part of the law. It actually points the way of salvation. Galatians 3.24, Therefore the law has become our tutor, our teacher, to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. When you look at the law and you can't keep it, you realize that you can't save yourself and you turn to Jesus Christ and trust in him for eternal life. That's the purpose of the law. So if I gave you ten things, and I said you have to do every one of these, and you said I can't do those, and I said, well, then you're going to have to come another way, and the other way is Jesus, and he's the only way. And so the law points people to Christ. That's part of his purpose in the book of Galatians when he writes those things. So he says, I say to you, until the heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass with the law until it's all accomplished, and that's the accomplishment. That then takes us to verse 19, and this is rewards in the law. And you say, what? Well, look what it says. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever keeps them and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We're not talking about believers. We're talking about, I mean, we're not talking about unbelievers, we're talking about believers. He says whoever rejects these principles and then teaches other people to reject them they'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. We're talking about believers and how they live. And then whoever keeps them and teaches them will be called great. So I want you to understand, whoever does not live by the Bible and teaches others to do the same, they're going to be least in the kingdom. We're talking believers. Now, we're not talking unbelievers. As a believer, if you live your life not by the Scripture, if you say, it's just not that important to me, I do my own thing, and you're going to be least in the kingdom. If you live by the Scripture and keep the Bible, and teach the Word of God, and and teach others to obey it, you'll be great in the kingdom of heaven. There are rewards for believers based on how we live. This has nothing to do with salvation. Salvation is a gift, comes by faith. This is your service and your life, and he's basically saying, if you live by the principles of the Bible, you'll be rewarded. You'll be great in the kingdom. If you don't live by the principle of the Bible, you won't be rewarded. You'll be least in the kingdom. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be rewarded for the things we've done in this body, whether good or worthless. Romans 14.10 says, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall give praise to God. Therefore, each one of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Now, the great truth is this, that every one of us in this room who know Jesus Christ as Savior, one day we will stand before him. Not for salvation. Salvation is already decided because we trusted in Jesus. He has given us eternal life. We will stand before him to be rewarded. And sometimes, according to 1 John, we may be ashamed of His coming. If we don't live righteously and godly, we will be least in the kingdom. If we live righteously and godly, we can be great in the kingdom. That's all he's saying. It's very hard. Because some people want to make it say something else, but it just plainly says, this is believers, and if you live righteously, you're great in the kingdom. If you don't live righteously and teach others not to live righteously, you'll you'll be least in the kingdom. That takes us to the last statement. And this last statement shocked everybody that was listening. He says this, For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses, your righteousness is greater than that of the scribes, And Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. To enter the kingdom of heaven is to have eternal life. To enter the kingdom of heaven is be saved. That's how we'd put it. He says, unless your righteousness is greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, this is pretty hard because the righteousness, we're talking about the righteousness required. We've already said we have to be perfectly righteous. Well, he makes a statement in front of all these people, and it says that righteousness has got to be greater than the religious leaders. Let me let you understand something. In that day and time, there were people called sinners. They were sinners. They 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 lived badly. They did a lot of bad things. They they did evil things. Then there were people who were just called pe- basically just people. They just lived, and they weren't very religious. They didn't do bad things. They just didn't do anything. And then there were what they call the righteous. Uh, the, the, the religious type leaders. And everybody looked at them and said, Now, these are the people we need to, to be like. Because they would go into the synagogue and they had the best seats in the synagogue and they would teach and read and they knew all of the laws and they had these long flowing robes. And when they gave money, they made sure everybody knew they gave money and they, they fasted and they did all these things. And they weren't believers, but they looked righteous because they kept all the rules. And then there were people who were actually called righteous people. They were people like Zacharias and people like John the Baptist and people like Peter and Paul. They were righteous because they believed in Jesus Christ and they got his righteousness. So when Jesus says, your righteousness must be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, the average person would say, well, we can't be that good. I mean, they keep all the laws. They go to all the good stuff. They, they're, the, they're the righteous ones. We're We're kind of sinners. We're kind of messed up. And when Jesus said that, some of them said, well, how how can anybody be better than the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, how can you be better than the scribes and the Pharisees? Because the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees won't save you. But how do we get the righteousness? Romans 4, 5, to a person who does not work but believes his faith is credited for righteousness. Philippians 3, 9, and being found in Christ, not having my own righteousness, but the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. As so I said a while ago. You can look at all the religious people in the world. And the world is full of religious people. And religious people are doing all kinds of things trying to get to God. They may pray three times a day, seven times a day. They may go to church every week. They may go say all their stuff. They may do all kind of things. They're religious people. And they're not righteous. And their righteousness can never get to God. The only way we can ever get to God is not through our righteousness and our goodness and our works, but through Jesus Christ and faith in him, he gives us his righteousness. So some of you may have thought in your life, look, I've got to live a good life to get to God. I've got to I've got to try to live a good life and then somehow that, uh, you know, God will love me and he'll see me. You know my story. I never went to church. Went to church once when I was six and once when I was 12. And when I went off to college, if you said to me, you think you're going to heaven? I said, I think I am. And if you said, why do you think you're going? I said, well, because when you stand before God, there's this big scale. And here's all the bad and here's all the good. And you just want to make sure you've got more good, than, you know, more good than bad on the scale. And you've got more good than bad. So God will say, well, you did more good than bad. You get to go to heaven. That's what I actually thought. There are a lot of people who think the same thing. They'll just think as long as you try to live a good life, God will love you and you'll be okay. You don't have to live a good life. You have to live a perfect life. And we can't live a perfect life. So Jesus Christ came and died for us, paid for our sins, and offers us the gift of eternal life, and he will give to us the righteousness he demands. So the moment I trusted Christ when I was 19 years old, thinking all my good, you know, I I realized all my good could not measure up to even one sin, and I needed a Savior. When I trusted in Christ, he gave me his righteousness. And he says, now... You're good enough because it's my goodness to you, not your goodness. So I hope and pray that every one of you in this room, you're not trying to depend on your goodness to get to God because you can't be good enough. In fact, it has to surpass those of the scribes and Pharisees and they weren't good enough. The only way you can have eternal life and have the righteousness God demands is by faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that the greatest thing his gift? It's grace. It's not your works. It's not your goodness. I remember the night that I understood it. I thought, well, I don't have to work anymore. And I didn't mean it in a bad way. I meant I don't have to work to try to be good enough to get to God. I didn't know I could never be good enough. But he gave me his righteousness by faith. So... We see Jesus talking about the law, and he says, listen, I came to fulfill the law. He paid the penalty. He showed the purpose. The law will not end until it's done everything. It shows the character of God and shows man's sin and points to the Messiah. And how we live is going to determine our rewards, and righteousness does not come by works but comes by faith. So let me give you some applications. First of all, let's understand law. Understand that there is a moral aspect of law. There are rights and wrongs for all times. From Adam and Eve, all the way up to Moses, all the way past Moses, all the way to Christ, all the way to now. There is a moral aspect to law. I want you to understand that Jesus kept the law perfectly. He kept the Mosaic law perfectly. He kept the moral law perfectly. We got to know, understand law, know the purpose of the law. It was to show the character of God. It was to show us that we're sinners, and it's a point to our Savior. Listen. If you look at law, it, just take the ten... Sometime, if you think you're going to try to be good enough to get to heaven, you go to Exodus 20 and look at the Ten Commandments and see how many of those you have broken. And the truth is you've broken every one of them. Maybe not outwardly, but inwardly. We're going to get to that in Matthew's chapter 6 and 7. And so if you're depending on the law and your works to get you to heaven, you can't do it. Understand law shows you your sinner, and shows you the way of salvation. Understand, let's understand that the way of salvation is not by law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. You can't keep the law. We've all sinned. Jesus Christ came as our substitute. He came to die for us. And we come to God by faith, not works, not keeping laws, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Never take that for granted. Finally, let's live by the Scripture. Because this is what he says. He says, when we live by the scripture, we can be called great in the kingdom of God. When we help others grow and all of those things. And this is called the law of love and the, and the, uh, the law of expediency. So live by the word and be faithful so we can hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. May we live by God's word, understanding the purpose of the law and proclaiming the grace message of salvation.